Joining me today is Professor of Performing Arts Pedagogy at Guildhall School of Music and Drama, Roberta Wolfe, as well as teaching on the Guildhall PG Cert programme, providing professional development on teaching skills to teachers across the performing arts disciplines. Roberta is also a workshop leader, coach and piano teacher. We have come together for this episode to discuss how to create optimal learning environments to serve children and young adult singers. So let's get to it. Roberta Wolf, welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are things with you? Very well, thank you, Alexa. It's lovely to be here with you and thanks for having me. We're together today to talk about creating optimal learning environments for children and young adults. So just to help us set this up a little bit, can you help us to contextualise what's kind of physically happening in the learning process and therefore why it's important for us to be considering the environment that we create? Yeah, I think this is a great question, actually. Thank you. So um, what's happening in the learning process is massive actually you know there's all sorts of issues that we can be talking about but perhaps just let's look at it through the lens of transformation we just want to create a change don't we we want it to be some sort of change in our students knowledge but it can also be a change in their sense of self or how they feel about themselves and i think that idea of transformation is what draws so many of us into teaching In all of my work, I've never met a teacher that doesn't bring anything but positive intentions to their work. And yet some teaching engagements aren't as successful as others. So the environment is this sort of ecosystem that we can use and curate to align with our values and our goals and what we want the students to learn. So I find it quite a sort of rich way to think about um, bringing our intentions and our aims um, across to the students' experience, but also giving space for the students' voice, for them to to learn and direct and have some autonomy in the process. Can we consider the working memory at this point? So this is a system where a limited amount of information is held temporarily. And thinking of this in relation to our education system, and particularly the peripatetic teachers who are going into schools and working with students who are either already in a class and having to come out or in the middle of the day. And these students are also moving between their subjects relatively quickly. So what are the chances that all of the information that they're learning in the day, plus the stuff that we're putting onto them in our music classes, is going to make it over to that long-term memory and what's going to have to happen for that to take place? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually used to be a peripatetic teacher, so I have a lot of empathy for those struggles and, you know, shortened lesson times and students arriving with all sorts of other things going on in their heads. Um, I think, you know, we we need to be clear on where our influence lies. So we're going to struggle to make sort of structural changes, but we can influence the space that the learner comes into. And it sometimes requires a little bit more time to help them transition into the lesson so that they're ready to learn and engage with the process. But if we can find a way to give that time, then the learning will often be more successful. I think it's also how we get them to engage in the lesson. So for me, part of the learning environment is um, to create space for the student's voice, for them to feel comfortable to ask questions and to challenge us. I love it when students challenge me because it shows me that they're really, really thinking. 
and um, to, to sort of structure the learning so it's not just about this transmission model, but that the student is going through some sort of reflective thinking, critical thinking, being given opportunities to analyze their own work. So, you know, instead of just immediately saying, well, this is what I think you did well, and this is what I think you need to improve, and this is how you're going to improve it, actually saying to them, how did that feel to you? Um, how did it compare to when you, you practiced at home? And um, what do you want to do with this in the lesson today? And if we give these opportunities, actually the ideas are coming from the student themselves, and so they're going to be more likely to remember um, the lesson. And in fact, more motivated to follow through on the practice because you're meeting them exactly where they're at. Um, and I, I also think it sets them up for better self-directed um, practice away from the lesson. Um, so, and, and lots of, I think also lots of um, opportunities for them to summarize within the lesson. Where, you know, I, for example, I don't write practice notes for my students. I get them to write their own notes in their own handwriting, in their own words, um, because then they'll understand them better. And again, is that little bit extra autonomy, ownership, you know, this is my space also. Reflecting on your own education or during CPD as the learner, what instance stands out to you as being particularly successful for your own learning? I really, really love this question, actually. And um, for me, I work best from a strengths-based approach. I do not respond well to a sort of deficit model. <laughs> and um, it's transformative, you know, for the person that's teaching me to already have a vision of what I might look like as my best self. It just gives me something to aspire to and it also gives me that sort of belief that it's possible so yeah that's really really important to me and it's it has been transformational in my own experience hmm. if i was to think back on my time at school or within education I, I can recall some of the lessons which i felt were really successful for me or that i really enjoyed and i kind of made a note of some patterns that i found and these seem to come around interest in the subject to start with, knowing that the teacher had a knowledge or a passion for the subject themselves, but I didn't expect them to know everything. There was a humor involved and there was almost um, a kindness that was being shown as well amongst other things. So touching on the interest part of that, I had a genuine interest in all of those subjects that I had those patterns found within them. French we can kind of ignore because mm -hmm. the reason I enjoyed that was because I fancied my French teacher and I was okay. a hormonal teenager at the time. <laughs> so that's not something that we want to promote as part of these learning environments, I'm sure. But particularly for children who may be part of a group music session or, let's face it, are, are asked to attend by their parents, um, maybe not of their own interest. What can we do to help those children enjoy their experience as much as possible? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And it's the reality of our teaching, isn't it? Because we come to this role because we are absolutely inspired and motivated and interested by all of the music and the art and everything. And we will invariably be teaching people who are just there because they have to be. Um, 
just coming back to the things that you found um, motivating in your learning, they're, they're very similar to some of these knowledge emotions, which is um, these four emotions that are considered to stimulate learning. And they are interest is one of them and surprise is the other one. Uh, really, really interesting confusion is also one of them. And awe is the other one. And um, so the idea behind these are that if we can include or create opportunities for these to be experienced in our lessons, then we can stimulate um, learning. Now, you sort of particularly um, hit home there on the interest one. And I, I think we all have our different ways of creating interest, don't we? I mean, I think where where we can adapting repertoire or using repertoire that meets with what the students like. And one of the things that I do quite often is um, create a sort of context for the music. I found in my own learning that um, a little bit of knowledge can spark much more interest in a topic. So, you know, if I um, have a little bit of knowledge in an area, then I will naturally be sort of um, prompted to to develop more or to find more. So for me, this is creating um, stories for my students, you know, around the music. It could be something about the composer or what the music might be about or their lives or, or anything that could be a sort of hook. Um, equally, it could be, you know, a a pattern, a harmonic progression or something else like that. Um, I, I had a really sort of going off the topic a little bit. I had um, a student learning a sort of grade four piece of music. And I said to her, do you know what my favorite part of this piece is? And um, she said to me, I bet it's that bit there. And I was like, how cool is that? You know, this sort of relationship and this knowledge that she knew what was meaningful to me. And it sort of just strikes up a conversation. So just you know, taking time to build those relationships also. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about those pillars? Like I'd be interested to know how we can create elements of surprise and and awe and that sort of thing as well. So how would you how would you explain that for us to implement? Yeah, definitely. So I think the surprise is sort of um seen as something that kind of jolts you a little bit something that's unexpected in the learning so this can be um your teacher kind of doing something a little bit stupid maybe a bit of a crazy um demonstration it can be using something in a different way so i've got um like a, a box full of teaching i don't know props we could call it and we have specific ways of using them but occasionally you know we'll just toss a ball around or you know just something a little bit playful and unexpected in the lesson so another way of creating surprise that i would use in my lessons i'm a pianist not a singing teacher but um one of the sort of fundamental principles around playing the piano is that if you play with with some sort of um sense of of um, motion and playing from a point of uh, moving into the piano rather than tensing your muscles to create a sound, then you're going to create a much um, rounder, resonant, beautiful tone. And so one of the ways that you know we can um, support this or demonstrate it is I would you know sing a note of music and I would sing it you know 
tightening my throat. This will probably bring pain to your listeners, forcing my vocal cords. And I would, you know, push the sound out and create a really unpleasant tone through that tense, um, uh, you know, sort of area. And then I would sing it with, you know, breath control and create a beautiful sound. Now to, in a singing lesson, this probably wouldn't be a surprise at all, but in a piano lesson for the students to suddenly start using their voice in this way and creating those correlations between um, muscles that are working out of tension and ones that are working from a sense of sort of movement um, can be quite surprising and quite interesting. And of course, having your piano teacher sing to you in a, you know, and create a horrible sound can also be a little bit surprising. So, you know, these sorts of things can be interesting. And along the sort of surprising element, um, I think using different ways, different demonstrations in lessons are also useful. Uh, my younger students love it when I make mistakes in playing their pieces. And, you know, why shouldn't we? Because it gives them a chance to kind of feel a little bit um, proud of their knowledge. So that's another way that we can just um, create a slightly more relaxed learning environment. You know, mistakes are part of life. It's something that we can learn from. And it's a little bit of a surprise to the students. Um, confusion. I think is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we tend to think that confusion is um, not a positive sort of experience to be learning from. Um, and I think that it's definitely on a scale in my experience. Confusion for it to be effective needs to be um, held in relation to some sense of self-efficacy. The student needs to believe that they are going to be able to work through that confusion for it to be possible. And so if we see that a student is confused, um, we can actually ask them to go, you know, oh, you look a little bit confused. That's all right, you know, that's part of learning. Um, what do you think you can do here to uh, get a deeper understanding or to, you know, kind of peel away those layers of confusion? And again, you're starting to get them to think through um, the processes that they might be working through. And then awe, I mean, awe is an interesting thing in itself because awe is something that humans most often experience when they're in nature and when they're engaging with um, music. Um, so, you know, I think we're sort of predestined to have a lot of awe in our, in our lessons. And I think that's what can make them nourishing. Um, I think what undermines that, though, is if as teachers, we're always trying to, you know, correct the student and this note was wrong and that rhythm was wrong and this was the, this technique didn't work and that intonation there wasn't great, you know, so how, how can we bring that, that those moments of awe? And I think it's easier with technology these days. Um, students can, you know, watch an opera singer, couldn't they? Um, or, you know, teachers demonstrating, I think is an opportunity for students to just kind of go, wow, and I think that um, if, if we are also willing to kind of be vulnerable with our students and show them the path, you know, that we went through the learning path up to that point where we were able to give that sort of awe-inspiring demonstration, then that makes it even more meaningful because you've kind of traced a track for them. Uh, so yeah, some ideas there. Going back to the interest idea as well, something that I find can be quite useful is when you first meet a student, 
is asking what else they're actually interested in so that that can be referred to or referenced when you're learning something new in this skill. So if we are somebody who's interested in cooking, for example, we can use analogies that are more related to cooking or artistry or whatever that might be. Um, and it can can kind of pull that interest in to our into our lesson. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an excellent example. Yeah, thank you. It, it kind of brings me back to this idea that, you know, the learning environment is also about how we develop this relationship um, with our students and how we get to know each other. And yeah, that's a great way of doing it. Speaking of the knowledge that I found was one of my pulls for my for my learning. It was my English literature and language lessons at school that I loved the most. And also on my degree, it was musical theatre in context classes, which were my absolute favourite, which is kind of weird as a performer. I'd expect the practical lessons to be top of the list, but it wasn't. It was it was the contextual classes, which were like a three hour long lecture on a Friday. But it was because these teachers were obviously passionate and deeply knowledgeable about the topic and were presenting it in lots of different ways. So it just made me want to ask about us as teachers and how we learn and when it comes to our own CPD as teachers, how we can best support our learning so that we can bring that into the classroom. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you're talking about CPD there in relation to knowledge, are you talking about sort of that developing our core knowledge in, you know, whatever the specialism is? Yeah, yeah I think so. And like doing more reading and taking courses and classes so that we can continue our skill set build. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it is vital, isn't it? And I think certainly over the period of my career, um, professional development for teachers who are maybe, you know, private or peripatetic or self-employed um, performing arts teachers has just come on in leaps and bounds, which I think is fabulous because as teachers, we're just giving and giving the whole time and we need this nourishment, don't we, for ourselves. Um, and, you know, this is actually a conversation that I was having not long ago with some of my uh, adult students and um, also piano teachers, you know, how are you going to sustain yourself um, so that you can continue to uh, grow, but also have you know a lot to offer students? And I think the answer is actually individual. It's it's separate to everyone. Um, I can tell you, I love audiobooks. Um, I listen to them when I'm chopping vegetables and boring things like that, hanging up the laundry. And so that's a really easy way for me to to kind of um, develop knowledge in specific areas. Uh, I mean, I think podcasts are great also, aren't they? Just kind of listening to, to other people and um, taking I, taking ideas. You know, I think this is a, a really um, fundamental part of what we can offer each other as communities of practice is, you know, sharing ideas knowing that they will be adapted and personalized to suit that person and you know their values and their aims for their students so yeah. and and of course there are lots and lots of more formal ways that we can undertake professional development you know having our own lessons i think is is a really really useful thing to do i teach on this pg cert at guildhall and that provides um, professional development in pedagogy skills which lots of teachers, um, you know, who, who are teaching performing arts don't necessarily have as a separate 
degree or qualifications. So, yeah. I, I think what I'm learning is that the changes that we're making or the transformations that we're making in the room with the student don't have to be this profound moment or a massive thing that you spent loads of hours preparing to do. It can actually be the the small things that make the biggest change. And also one thing I feel we have to manage all the time is the impact of our own difficulties and our own moods and frustrations and how we can make sure we have a hold on those so they don't infiltrate and damage the environment that we're creating. So what would you say on that? Have you ever found yourself in a really bad mood and needing to, I don't know, change the way you teach that day? <laughs> I mean, we're all human, aren't we? So yes, I think that happens. Um, I think, first of all, just to acknowledge the first thing that you said there, which is that I agree, it's the sum of those small things. I think it's pitching up for our students time and time again, being on their side, you know, having belief in them. And, and also, I find really important to be a, a sort of mirror for them to look in. Uh, I think so often in the performing arts, we're always looking forward, the next challenge, the next piece, the next performance, whatever it is. And actually sometimes just for us to sit and say to our students, you know what, I'm just thinking back to how we were working six weeks ago and look how far you've come on since then. And also just, you know, creating the space for them um, to, re to repeatedly just have small incremental bits of growth and development um, and then you linked that to uh, how we might pitch up in lessons when we're having a bad day and you know for me um, I, it's going to obviously change for everyone depending on the context that they're working in but I find a lot of value in just owning that with students and just saying you know in, 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 in an age-appropriate way maybe um, oh, I'm feeling a little bit tired today. What could we do to wake me up? And, you know, maybe I need to do some star jumps or something like that. And maybe there's an element of surprise there. And, you know, maybe we can um, do, do those, take those sorts of approaches. I think students read um, teachers very, very well. And I think that if we are going to try and bluff, then we need to be <laughs> quite um, skilled in how we carry that out. Uh, of course, there's also the, the element of managing our own boundaries. And um, I think this is where, you know, our values and what we want to um, put in place for our students' learning can guide us and, you know, just, just kind of help us sort of clear out the, the, the negative things or whatever it is and, and focus on the student. My history teacher had a great sense of humour and even though he taught with authority, he had this way of bringing us up to meet him at his level. We had some brief exchanges on this topic when we first arranged to come together today and something you said was for us to get really useful, i.e. honest answers from our students, they need to feel safe and heard and valued. And as human beings, are those feelings kind of universal? And if not, like, how do we make sure that the person in front of us feels safe, heard and, and valued? So the ways in which they do feel those things, are they going to differ from person to person? And if so, how do we find out how that student is going to feel those things in our lesson? Yeah, and I think this is a really, really important question, because 
um, the degree of vulnerability that the student will be able to show with us um, is actually the degree of um, adaptation and intervention we can provide and support them with in their learning. Uh, so I think there's a few sort of key points around that. Everybody's going to need something different. And it comes back to this idea that you had earlier, you know, really just getting to know the student, watching them, seeing what makes them tick, um, as well as also asking them. So in terms of creating that safe space for students, I think they need to be able to um, share their ideas and share their thoughts and for those to be listened to and heard to by the teacher. So, you know, we could say to our students as a, a very sort of low level example, um, what do you think will be a useful practice strategy for this part of the piece? And then they could give us an answer and we could go, crumbs, I really don't think that's going to work really well, you know, or we might be thinking crumbs, I really don't think that's going to work very well. But we might want to say, great, okay, give it a try. How do you see it working? Um, let's, let's go, you know, go with that for this week and see how you come back. And so that's, that student has been heard and validated. And you, we have to sort of sometimes change our mind in order to create that space for the student to uh, say what they need to say. And if we can do it in those sorts of really low level cases, you know, another game that I play with my students, even my really young ones, sort of six year olds, I'll say to them, um, oh, that's quite a tricky bar, isn't it? You know, you've got this going on in one hand and this in another hand. I wonder how many times do you think you're going to have to do it for your fingers to start to feel confident? And lots of them look at me, they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, it's not serious. Take a guess. And they go, uh, I don't know three times. Okay, great. Let's see. And they'll do it three times. And, you know, they'll kind of, after two times, they'll be like, Oh, I can already do it. Or they'll be, I'm going to need more than three times. But we're just starting to show them that they can be wrong, and they can learn from that. And so lots of these little experiences, like we were talking about earlier, add up to the big stuff. So when we do need to ask them the important questions, or something that maybe requires a little bit more um sense of you know exposure or, or something from them from themselves um they already have that trust with us and they already feel that their voice is valued in that space and that you're there you know seeing them as their best selves yeah i have like a very strange question which is do you practice this or do you find yourself doing this in like your social life because as we're chatting now i can I actually really feel like you're doing this with me. I really feel like you're listening to what I'm saying or asking because there's a sense of you kind of repeating part of the question that I asked or or, or, or acknowledging the question that I've asked in a particular way. Like, is that something that you just find? Do, you, do your friends say, oh, I need to speak to Roberta because she's a great listener? <laughs> oh, Alexa, do you know what? You're very perceptive. <laughs> um, I wasn't even aware I was doing it but I am trained as a coach. And so there is this sort of um, place that you go into when you're listening to people and you're listening on all levels and you're listening to body language and facial expressions and what's not being said as much as what is being said. So 
yeah, maybe you're doing such a good job at making me comfortable here talking <laughs> to you, but I'm like in that listening space where I'm also really comfortable. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's something that we can do for each other as humans that is really, really valuable. So yeah. there's an excellent book. Um, I think it's called The Thinking Space. It's by Nancy Klein. I can look it up for you. But yeah, she talks all about create, uh, thinking environments. Oh. And um, it's just, it's such a lovely sort of concept whereby the quality that we bring to our listening um, can improve the quality of the other person's thinking. And I love that idea. Yeah. 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 If a singer has arrived to our session then from a previous situation, whether that's a friendship breakdown or a tricky class, and they seem upset, how will we need to adapt our session in order for their optimal learning to occur? Because we learn best when we feel safe, as we've said, and also when we're happy. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think we can ask them that question. You know, I, that would be the sort of top tip on that one. Um, and obviously, you know, we might need to support them in their answer, like, you don't seem really happy today. Um, would you like us to just get on with our piano lesson? Or would you like to uh, do something else first? Shall we do a warm up or play a game or draw a picture, you know, for a younger student or, uh, and I think giving them that control um, in the lesson time, and acknowledging where they're at is really useful and 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 can change it also um sorry change the sort of the however they're feeling or however they've arrived at the lesson um but it also allows them to bring their whole selves into that lesson space and not to feel that they have to leave something behind at the door and that's really important to me because I don't want my students to feel like they have to be someone they're not to access my learning. I want them to be who they are and for us to work with that. And, you know, you're talking about your learning experiences and, you know, we've all had our own learning experiences. And I know that some lessons I felt that I've had to somehow leave parts of me behind in order to be acceptable in that space. And that's not something I ever want to do to a student. Yes, you know, there's there, there might be um, ways of working together that are important. So um, I'm not going to let a student bash my piano and I'm not going to let them put their feet on it or anything like that. But though, that's just a sort of sort of ground rules for us to work together. But um, yeah, they, they need to bring who they are all of the space. And not to be totally cynical, <laughs> but what if there's a student who might be, you know, hoping that we, we do something else that they don't have to reveal that they didn't practice or they haven't bought their rep or something, but they're, they're kind of not using that as, as a way out. But yeah, how do we read that? I know. And it is, it is going to happen, isn't it? Um, I think we're all going to have our own ways of dealing with that. Um, in my in, in my setup, how I work, uh, one of the things that's important to me is that I'm there for the student. So if they need me to repeat a lesson or, you know, go over some different practice strategies or alter my teaching approaches, then I'm going to do that. And um, 
you know, if they if there's some reason that they haven't got what they need or they're not prepared for the lesson, um, I would like to explore that with them and find out what I can do to better help them. Uh, when I st and this has changed, you know, when I started teaching, I was like, this is your practice, you go do your practice. Um, and I don't know if it's that I've I've softened over the years or that I've just maybe seen the advantage of giving the students more autonomy. Um, but it's certainly a lot more successful how I work now. And it's a hell of a lot less stressful because, you know, if they don't do their practice, in my first year of teaching, I'd be like, well, what have I done wrong? How am I going to make them practice? Do I need to speak to the parents? You know, what are, you know, and I would take all of this onto myself. And now if they don't do their practice, I'm like, okay, something was obviously not working out for you there. What can we do? It's it, it sort of, again, it just opens this dialogue and gives me information that I can then use. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. I've, I've totally been there as well and been thinking that I'm crap <laughs> because I haven't had the influence to, to help there. But yeah, I totally get that. In episode 169 of the Full Voice podcast titled Happy Hormones for Learning with Dr. Ginevra Williams, she says words that we use are really, really crucial. And we know on one extreme that if a child is really frightened or really anxious, they're not going to learn very well. If there's cortisol washing around the body, adrenaline washing around, the brain has become hijacked by that and you won't learn constructively. She also goes on to say how we could potentially reframe threatening phrases like if you don't get these grades, you won't get into a good university. So two, let's have fun learning this stuff and whatever grades you get is where you're at at this moment and we'll be really happy with that. And if you've worked hard, will be really proud of you. So what are your thoughts on those things? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely 100% agree with that and being really careful about the language that we choose. And even now, you know, I'll catch myself using a turn of phrase and I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's a little bit um, a sort of deficit model, something negative. And just recognizing that that comes from maybe my educational experiences and um trying to reframe that and you know the the whole concept of growth mindset language is also coming up for me in what you're talking about here um i, I think there's there's also something else which is that who is who is setting what success looks like for each individual student and to what degree can we adapt to their view of success um, I try not to set my students' agenda. I try to hear from them what their agenda is and where they want to go. Obviously, not everybody knows, and younger students will need much, much more support and, and scaffolding in that area. But if I have a general idea of what success looks like for them, then working towards that is, is much easier. And it sort of um, takes away that need to say things like you're not going to do well if you don't practice because they're already aware of where they are and where they want to get to. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, I was wondering off the back of that, like how how do you make that work in a space like 
at Guildhall, where I assume there's there's more of a, an academic route or there's assessments and things along the way. Like how much autonomy do you therefore give those students or is it exactly the same? Doesn't matter what environment you're in. Yeah, so my work at Guildhall is, you're right, very much academic and very much um, it's a postgraduate course and it's for um, teachers who are already teaching and it's in the art of pedagogy, you know, teaching skills and stuff like that. So uh, they are very much um, taking, you know, theories and uh, looking at different models of teaching and learning and things like that, and then understanding that in their own practice. Um, of course, in that sense, they've got assignments that they need to fulfill and assessment criteria that they are going to be marked against. But it's, it's the creating space for their voice and for their interpretation of the, the materials. And this is what's really crucial, I think, for those students, because they didn't come there to be told how to teach. I think they came there to um, develop something that's going to be really exciting and unique for them in their practice. And that's one of the ways that we, we can sort of balance um, their voice and their expertise in their areas, because we're teaching across disciplines. So yes, you know, as tutors, we might have the expertise in pedagogical knowledge, but how that translates, you know, to someone, to a sound technician, to a ballet dancer, to a, a drama teacher is going to be different. So, so again, it's kind of like valuing who they are and what expertise they bring. And I think that works with younger students also, because they might not have a lot of um, expertise, but they certainly know what they like and what they don't like and who they are and what's important to them in their lives. And if we've got some space for that, then I think that's a really important part of, of the, the learning environment. In terms of giving an instruction and using the language that we have to do that, how can we best provide an exercise that is concise and understandable without confusing someone in the environment? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I think this is where we come back to um, what we were talking about actually at Italia Conti, isn't it? Uh, this idea that there's three different modes that we can be in uh, when we're teaching and that each mode has an advantage. So the first mode is, um, it's connected to a very sort of transmission model of teaching and it's very efficient and it tells the student what they need to know and it's sort of job done. Um, the second mode is that we are creating experiences for the student to learn and uncover knowledge for themselves. It takes a little bit longer, but the learning is deeper. And the third mode is where we're actually aligning ourselves with the student and looking at a problem together. And that can, that can lead anywhere. Um, it can take longer, but it's also really empowering for the student. And the general idea behind these the, um, teaching alignments, they're called, is that using a um, variety of them gives the students the best opportunities of engagement. So if you need to tell the students something, then, you know, I would say we just tell it to them, don't we? We say, look, this is my knowledge. This is my experience. This is what I think you should do. You can always ask them how that lands. <laughs> I think they're going to be able to do it, I think is really important um, because they're not going to do it if they don't understand or they don't think they can. 
The idea of learning styles, that has been something that has infiltrated the educational realm, I guess, with like, we must have, some people are audible learners, some people are kinesthetic. I think over the years, it seems to have been more poo-pooed. Um, so is there such thing as a preferred learning style or are we really trying to make sure that we can cover all bases? It's a great question, isn't it? And um, I will talk from sort of my experience in this one. So, you know, there's this whole new area developing called neuroeducational research, and it is um, all about you know, what the scientists can discover about the brain and learning and what the practitioners and teachers know about what happens in class. And um, between these two bodies that have very different spheres of expertise and ways of talking and understanding, we get these um, ideas that kind of don't quite translate and the uh, you know we these are now called neuromyths so yeah you're right they've sort of been poo-pooed scientifically it's an oversimplification of what is happening and not really anywhere near a biologically realistic um description of what's going on in the brain however you know there's still something to be said for multiple ways of experiencing something. If we teach something in one way, then that's one opportunity to learn it. If we teach something with a sort of visual connection, with something that's more tactile and with something that's more auditory, then they've learned it three times. And they've learned it, I sort of feel like from three different perspectives, or they've they've experienced it in three different ways. So learning something three times against learning something one time is always going to be more um engaging isn't it yeah and and potentially more interesting so i think you know it's it's a useful model in our or it can be a useful model in our lesson plans and so instead of just going well this is how i think about notation and they must think of it this way, Look, just encouraging ourselves to find different ways of maybe teaching something. So yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting point. And I think other neuromyths that have come about are sort of drinking water during the day is um, not proven to have any uh, biological, neurological um, enhancement to our learning, uh, which seems strange actually doesn't it it's like the thing that we all need to thrive on but what does drinking water involve maybe it involves a whole class of children getting up stretching their legs moving to a different part of the room having a sip you know just sort of refreshing themselves physically and mentally and coming back down and uh, coming back to their seats so do you see what i mean there can be um a, a, a sort of different uh Things, things that work in the classroom work for different yeah. things than like different benefits. Mm. 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 So a way that we could maybe do that in the music room, could it be something like, listen to this example, try that out on yourself and see if we can recreate the same sort of results. Okay, that's your practice, write down what your intentions are. And then when you're actually practicing it, you're reading back the instruction, I guess, then there we're including lots of different ways for that to be engaged with. 
potentially. Yeah, I think so. And I think in listening to that example, you can listen to it um, with your eyes shut. So, you know, I don't know. I, I listen differently when my eyes are shut somehow. Or you can, you can listen to it and follow a score. Or maybe you could listen to it and move. Um, and, you know, just having these different experiences, I think it can can be really interesting. And, and it's also unique, isn't it? It's not something that they'll be doing in their other lessons. Yeah, yeah, so true. When it comes to feedback, and this I know was the topic that you came and did a, a, an amazing pr presentation. I really enjoyed it at Italia Conti. So thank you so much for that. Um, which was, you know, when is it optimal to give feedback and how do we give feedback in that environment that we've created? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fundamental part of teaching, isn't it? And, um, you know, we we're always giving feedback. But I think also if we stop and listen, then our students can also give a chance to experience this giving feedback. And so for me and my teaching, I'm very interested in the feedback that my students give themselves because it gives me a really clear idea at, at what level they're thinking and working. Um, and I think it's really important that the feedback we offer our students is not so far above or so far below where they're actually working that it sort of becomes meaningless to them. Um, so, you know, some of the things that I've found work really well for me is after a student has finished playing or in your case, singing, um, just asking them, you know, how did you feel that went? What did you, and, and I often say, what did you like about it first? Because I think they need to be really clear on that. And again, it comes back to that sort of strengths-based approach. Um, and what would you like to change about it? And once I've heard their thoughts, then um, I'd say, you know, okay, I've got some ideas. I, you know, I, I hear you when you're talking about this area. Um, I'd love to suggest something about this. And would you, you know, would you like to hear that suggestion? Or would you like to work on what you've pointed out? And just giving them that choice. Often, um, the older students will say, I'd like to hear what you've got to say, and then we'll try and cover both. But the other thing that I also do around the feedback is we will take a sort of mini little process, a little bit of time out of the lesson and say, right, you know, out of all of these things, what I've said, what you've said, what are we going to work on for today? And that little moment of sort of contracting almost a little mini segment of the session um, gives them that chance to tell me what they want to be learning and again it just makes it more impactful. When I first started teaching I fell into the hole of over praising which I guess is better than you know making people feel like crap <laughs> but um, I, I did I went through a phase of you know which is great for people's confidence but I, I also had to kind of just rein it in a little bit because I was just really bringing them up when maybe it wasn't as honest as where things needed to be focused in on. So how would you advise teachers who are new or who struggle with that, like I have, of overpraising, but on the other side of that, giving constructive feedback, which has positives, but also targets what we really need to focus on for benefit? Yeah, really, really good question, I think, and a trap that lots of us have definitely fallen into. So the the thing about praise is that um, 
what's really important is to link it to something that the student is actually doing. So, you know, instead of just going, that was superb, you could say, you know, you could still say that was superb, but then say you've made so much improvement on your intonation since I last heard this piece. And then it's actually telling the student um, what they can do to repeat that superbness in the future, rather than just being this sort of empty thing that they don't really feel they've got any control over and can actually be quite anxiety inducing if you think about it. That was superb. It's like, but how am I ever going to do it again? You know, <laughs> one of the sort of primary uh, bits of advice on this is to praise effort rather than to praise the outcome, because I've seen a lot of students where the outcome is maybe not um, where we might want it to be, but the effort is there and the intention is there and actually taking a moment to just recognize that effort um, is, is going to set the scene for them to then be able to hear better what to do with it from there so you know i've seen students um you know doing doing something like you know this really confused look on their face and really peering at the score like they haven't seen it and trying to work out the notes and then looking down on it, you know and you can go <laughs> and it's like wrong in every way isn't it you know that's not the technique and it's not how you read music or anything like that and but i can say to them i can see you really really tried to understand that part is it still challenging for you um what do you think we can do that's going to make it easier do we need to write something on the music can we you know find an exercise or something like that but i've still given them that initial bit of recognition for their intention, you know, even if it wasn't successful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, can we talk about like the physical space that, that a student comes into? Because a lot of us might not have too much say in how the space is actually set up, especially in institutions, for example. But how does the physical space have an impact on, on the learning? And, and do you have any advice for how we can set that up even when we don't have much say in what goes mm. on there? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think also just to acknowledge that the physical space that we might be teaching in, the student might be occupying in different roles or in different ways. Um, and that can also make a difference to their behavior or how they might enter that space. Um, so, yeah, I think everybody's going to feel different, but we've all got a bag of teaching resources, haven't we? And I think that having something that maybe sets that space apart um, as a space that we're in, uh, together with the, the relationship that we build and the ways that we communicate and create space for the student uh, is where the difference is. Um, so, you know, one of the things that the sort of games that I play with students is I've got I was saying earlier this box of resources and the, it's just it's just toys really and you know i'll just say to them yeah go and choose something that you think is going to help your learning today and just just going up to the box and they're thinking oh what's going to help me and they look in the box and they choose something completely random but it just sort of changes how they experience that space and it's just something a little bit different there's that famous saying, isn't there, that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. 
So having said that, if we were in the most optimal environment, everything was hunky-dory, is it possible for all of us to learn anything? It's a, it's a brilliant question, isn't it? And it's, I think, the original nature-nurture debate in, in, a, in a sort of teaching context. Um, and so I'm going to just talk a little bit. Have you read this book, um, Grit, by Angela Duckworth? No, I haven't. It's excellent. It's such a great, accessible read. And um, I'll tell you what she says. So she says that um, talent times effort equals skill. And so what that means is that talent might kickstart the process um, and it might sort of make it a little bit easier, but you still need to put in that effort if you want to achieve the skill. And then she says that skill times effort makes achievement. And then she turns around and she says, so effort counts twice. And and I, I, I love that because I think it's sort of, uh, combines those two elements that doesn't take away from the fact that as different people we're all going to be slightly better at different things but you need two times the amount of effort according to her um in order to to reach that point of achievement so yeah I don't think any amount of effort that I put into being a physicist would ever be enough. Well, I'm with you on that one. You know, it's that, that initial spark for me there is just not there in the same way it is with, you know, music or teaching and learning. Yeah. Yeah. And so I suppose if someone really wanted to, they could put in twice the amount of effort, but it's still going to be a challenge. And yeah, yeah. Can you tell us um, a little bit more about the Guildhall PG cert that you're a part of? And if any of our listeners are interested, how do they check that out? Uh, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So this course, actually, I think was, you know, you were talking to me about, you asked me earlier about what changed for me um, or what was the most effective learning environment for me. And it was while I was studying on this course that I experienced that. So it's a very dear one to my heart, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, and what's special about it is it's interdisciplinary. So it's a sort of um, collection of uh, practitioners across the performing arts who absolutely are dedicated to their teaching practices and are looking to improve um, their students' sort of experiences by developing their teaching skills. Uh, if people want to know more about it, then we've got a website, which I will share with you. And we've got open evenings coming up earlier, uh, early on next year also. So they can always come and attend one of those. Um, but what I love about this course is that um, it doesn't say to you, do this, do this, do this in your teaching. Um, partly because actually that's not going to be effective. Just like we know with our students, we can say, do this, do this, do this, but doesn't mean they're going to go and do it. Um, but it also creates space for the practitioners to develop what is going to be most effective in their practices. So yes, you're learning about um, theories, but they're all fascinating. They're all deeply connected with performing arts pedagogy and you can interpret them in your own ways you can create your own models and your own processes so it's really tapping into that um, creative element that i think so many of us in the performing arts 
thrive on. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that our paths cross again. Yes, so do I. Thank you so much, Alexa. It's been lovely, lovely talking to you. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.